Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on today's show, we'll be talking golf course architecture and the impact of setup on two highly regarded layouts, Royal Melbourne and Riviera. My co-hosts for the day, as always, blogger, author, analyst, commentator, Jeff Shackleford, who was on site at Riviera, Riviera for the LA Open last week. Shack, looking forward to your thoughts on the event, and in particular, the 10th hole, which was a little bit controversial for the course of the week. Yes, thank you, Rod, and apologies in advance for uh, any loud noises in the background. My uh, home internet is uh, out, so I'm I'm uh, mooching off our friends at uh, Starbucks. And, and it's, uh, it's our first official OB, Jeff. That's what they call it in the yes. business. It's an OB, which is fantastic. So <laughs> look forward to seeing that unfold. And uh, here in Australia, former touring pro, course architect, commentator, columnist these days, sometime caddy Mike Clayton, who watched an extraordinary amount of golf at Royal Melbourne last week, where he caddied for Sue O'Clayton. Clates feels like only yesterday we were wandering the fairways at that grand old girl together. It was. It was an interesting week, I have to say. To say the absolute least. And I wanted to start with you, Clates, because now you probably realise there are some people in golf who don't agree with everything you say. Shaq and I aren't among them, of course, but there are some. But to, to illustrate how closely you study the game, just outline for the listener your viewing schedule at Royal Melbourne for the last two days. Given that you were caddying for the bag, <laughs> carrying the bag for Sue at the same time, tell the people how much golf you watched. Well, I was such a bad caddy, she missed the cut. Um, but she did win the Australian Masters the week before by betting the last four holes to win. It was the second tournament as a pro, so she, she bogeyed the last three holes with me caddying for her to lose the first week and then buried the last four to win the next week. Uh, well, I just I watched um, So Young Yu, who my friend Tom Watson, who was on the show last year, K's four, and then I watched a bit of Lydia, which was a – she dismantled that course, really. It was in – in a, in a, I watched Seve play there in 1978, and it was whilst it was much different, it was still as impressive as it was almost the most impressive golf I'd seen in Royal Melbourne. She just took it apart. She understood it, hit it in the perfect spots, and hit the ball in the greens where you've got to hit it, and just made everyone else look in a different league, really. Pedestrian almost, didn't she? So just to outline for those close, so you you, ca- you hit off at about 7:30, I think, on Thursday morning. Carried 18 holes for Sue. Then you went out in the afternoon and you walked the course again. Following Saturday, and you did, you did the same on Friday. You went out in the morning and followed, and then you went out in the afternoon and carried. I, for one, was staggered. But uh, congratulations to you for what was a, a fabulous effort. Back to the golf. You mentioned Sue there. Of course, she did miss the cut, but had a win the week before. She's a, she's quite the talent. But how did you feel about? So you played with Aria Jatanagan and Catherine Kirk in the first two rounds. How did her game shape up to those two clates? Well, she she didn't play well. She three putted. She had fourteen greens the first day and three putted too many times but you know, she, in, tricky looking back she'd played two weeks where she she's quite an aggressive putter really, and she, she, she was able to putt that way certainly in Queensland where the greens are not quick at all you can't putt like that at Royal Melbourne and she she whacked a couple of 20 footers four feet past and missed them and it's easy to get yourself off balance at Royal Melbourne you, don't, you know it's, it's just, you just could bleed shots from seemingly nowhere but Chitanagam was I mean she was injured for a while I think she was out for 18 months or something but uh, she, I thought she was incredibly impressive. I mean, she didn't understand the golf course or like it, I don't think, but um, she just smashes it. I mean, you saw her hit them, and she stood in the first hole of the tournament, the 10th waist, and just hammered a three-wood off the 10, ripped a two-iron straight in the middle of the ground. It was really impressive. And an extraordinary ball flight case. From the side, I thought that she hit that second shot. I thought she'd hit it thin, never got more than eight feet off the ground. I thought, oh, she's missed that. But as you say, she just ripped it into the heart of the green. Yeah, she hammered it. She was really impressive, and she played well. Uh, last week in Thailand, and 
she and, and I think she lost the playoff the first week in Florida. So having been out for a long time, she's she, she'll be in the top five in the world by the end of the year. I wouldn't doubt. Mm-hmm. So very impressive. Well, Catherine plays nicely. She's not powerful or strong or a great ball striker, but she plays the game well and disciplined. She, she had a good week. Yeah. Nice kid, they're great fun. She's really, really nice girl to be out with. Her. Yeah, she, she, uh, she certainly is. It, it was interesting, Clayton, uh, to watch it up close. I, you know, I've been to the women's golf a few times before, but we don't get to see much of it in Sydney. Not at that sort of level. The, the, the disparity between the top and bottom of the field is extraordinary in the women. Much different to the men's, isn't it? Yeah, well, certainly on the equivalent on the PGA tour, you can watch the. You saw this morning, you know, Harrington at. 297 in the world can go and beat a kid who's 173 in the world, and they, they're impressive-looking players. But you, know, you go that far down the women's game, there's a big difference between them and how Lydia plays, or Tanagan, or Sayong Yu, or you know any of the other top sort of 10 or 15 players. I mean, Sue's a good, really good 18-year-old player, but she's a mile behind, obviously Lydia and Aria and Lexi and the girls who are a similar age, and she knows how much she's. Has to improve, and she's only been a pro four weeks. But you know, she she's a she, she's a way behind, but she's got she's got time to catch up, obviously. Oh, and, and all the tools, Clates, which is the most important thing. I mean, she's got everything required to get to that level, um, but probably a bit of experience, perhaps, at oh, that yeah. level. And yeah, I mean, you know, she's been out there for a month, and she's won twice, and won once, and finished second, and been you know, she's, she's doing okay. And she played okay in New Zealand last week. She shot a bad first round, then. Shot 66 and made the cut playing with Lydia and Charlie Hull and shot a decent third round. So she's okay. She's fine. Yes, indeed. Which brings me to what I wanted to really talk about, Clates, and having watched a lot of golf and a lot with you at the weekend. And isn't that a great spectator sport, Shaq? Just walking the course with Clayton, listening to his commentary on the course <laughs> and the game and the, the way they play. But probably not fit for broadcast most of it, but extremely yeah. entertaining to say, I bet. <laughs> to say the least. You could probably sell the tickets to that, Clates, uh, if you ever decide to go that way. But your thoughts on the course setup, it looked to me, and we discussed it on, the greens looked extremely firm, almost too hard for that field. And to me, it almost it seemed to maybe detract a bit from the golf. What were your thoughts? Obviously, you were out there and you you, know, you caddied the first two days and watched a lot of the golf. What do you think about the course setup and how it's set up for the women in particular? Well, the tees were set up well. The course was 6,700 yards, and they had the tees, as opposed to last time they played at Royal Melbourne, they had the tees in much better spots. So you were hitting the proper clubs off the tees, and you weren't getting jammed in the corners. So that was better. I mean, Royal Melbourne, seemingly, the course can never help itself. It just gets so hard and so fast, and it's the middle of summer. I mean, there was nothing remotely close to the need to fix a pitch mark. You didn't even look for a pitch mark when you hit to the greens. So... For that field, I mean, for, the, for the men, it would have been okay. For the women, yeah, they don't spin the ball as much. They might hit the ball as far as men, the men used to, but they don't spin the ball like that they do. And, the, and of course, the fairways aren't ideal for that either. So, so it's so it got to be a bit like a skating rink in the end. I mean, but of course, Lydia belied that by playing the course perfectly and showing that it was perfectly playable. But my question would be, the reality of it is that Aria Jatanagar wasn't standing on the four-inch hole on the composite course, the fourth west, and marvelling at the genius of Alice McKenzie. She was looking at a three-iron that was laying on the front of the green going on to the 15th tee. So if you want them to come back, which is critical to the importance of the tournament, you've got to somehow mix how you want to set the course up with something that is going to encourage them to come back and play. Mm. So I think if that had a box in the... Scorers tent where you tick yes or no, would you come back and play the same course under the same conditions next year? The majority, you would press no. 
But next year they'll play at Kingston Heath, and that'll be much better and much more playable. I mean, it was. I mean, clearly it was playable. I mean, there were five or six under par, but it just it always tips on the side of being too hard and too fast. And I wonder what the point of it is, really. And what does that do, Clayton? There was a discussion on one of the golf forums down here. Stacey Lewis apparently was quoted as saying, you know, she she didn't come this year to play at Royal Melbourne. She 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 described it as a course that doesn't reward good shots. So for those mm. perhaps not in the know and not as educated or not interested in this sort of stuff as much, a quote like that from a high profile player, they say, well, that's it. You just dismiss Royal Melbourne. It, it's not a good course. What's the potential danger of having the course set up like that and and seeing that sort of thing uh, to you know the the, the more broad sort of golfing public appreciating a course like Royal Melbourne. So much weight is put on what the pros say, isn't it? Well, kind of, but most people here would look at that and say, well, she's an idiot. Because clearly that's not true. I mean, Royal Melbourne more than anywhere rewards good shots. It just, you know, it murders shots that are average or played from the wrong side or landed in the wrong spot. So so it's, um, you know, so much professional. We saw it today with Harrington on the in the playoff hole. He hits a Great shot with a seven iron, but it splats where it lands and stops. Mm-hmm. So pros are so used to their idea of what a good shot is, is a, is a shot that is hit out of the middle of the club that goes on a nice trajectory, goes where it's aimed, and hits the green and stops by the hole. That's a good shot. Mm-hmm. So a shot that's got to land 40 feet short and left of the hole with a low fade and bounce and run it through the swell and leak its way back to the back right pin is, well, you know, if, if, if you don't pull it off and it finishes up, you know, you, you hit a decent shot, but it finishes up 60 feet away, then that's not rewarding a good shot. Well, Lydia Coe showed that going into the third east last week at Royal Melbourne, the 15th hole, that every day she just hit a perfect shot into that green, landed in exactly the spot, with the, in exactly the right spot, with the right trajectory, and bounced the ball back to the hole. In fact, she hit it in the hole one day. Mm. So she showed that you can do it, but, you know, if your mentality is hit, splat, stop by the hole, that's a good shot then you, you, you will think that Royal Melbourne doesn't reward that because it doesn't reward that at all. You know, it asks a completely different question. The, you know, the, my question is, does it go a little overboard in tournaments when it becomes so severe that you, you know, you've got to be so precise? And, 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 and the men on the US too won't play greens that hard this year. No. So, so why, why set it up that way for women who are clearly not as good but who still played tremendous golf but you know, if you're playing the hard, literally the hardest greens in the world at, at 12 or 13 on the centimetre, is, is that really how you want to do it? Why can't you have them like the equal hardest greens in the world but 11? Does that make more sense? It does to me. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Shaq, how did it look on TV? And, and just talk a bit about that point that I was, I think I was trying to make there with you know, what that does to the general discussion about golf courses and the education of the golfing public about what actually is good golf. What did you see on TV from the Women's Open? I assume you watched some and, and – how does that sort of fit into that, you know, what that does for the for Royal Melbourne and its reputation in golf? Lydia hit 64 of 72 greens. What are you talking about? Can we just can we just say here, and I think we'll all agree, or Clades, I don't think it's fair to compare Lydia to everybody else in golf. Okay. She all was right. she was extru- she just never misses. She hits it where she looks every single time. Every time. I don't think I saw her hit a bad shot, Clades. I think well, that's I mean, that incredible. Was so- that was some of the best golf I'd ever seen anyway, Parker, who it was. Without doubt. Clayton's even abused her caddy. Clayton's abused her caddy at one point, Jack, and said, I've been following her for 25 holes. She hasn't a bad shot yet. Could you help me out? And it was true. Wow. She just doesn't miss. It, it It really was extraordinary. So let's put Lydia aside. We might talk to her, yeah, yeah, yeah. her a bit no, later. I, but on TV, what did, what did you sort of see and what did you make of it, Jack? Yeah, I saw some of that, but I also tend to maybe not look at it 
quite the same way just because I have sort of uh, low expectations for LPGA short games. I just have always been sort of mystified by, by that. So I kind of chalked it up to that, but um, I, I also knew what was going on at Riviera. The same exact thing with, with the green firmness was going on. So I was watching it and I expected a Royal Melbourne because because I've been hearing that how firm they've been getting and um, uh, and and again, I kind of wasn't sure how much of it was that, and how much was just sort of uh, the way a lot of the women were playing. But I mean, everything looked—it looked great on television. So, but then they showed a lot of Lydia, so that's why uh, we. There, I didn't. I didn't. Usually, I have kind of a red flag thing I uh, put up when I see stuff, but it just didn't seem like that was. Uh, it didn't. It didn't seem excessive. But again, it was probably more the television coverage. Uh, well, well, as you say, they did show a lot of Lydia, which was interesting. Just on a side note, Clayton, you probably recall this, on the Saturday afternoon, you, me, and about 40 other people followed Lydia for the back nine. There was almost no crowds there, which was disappointing, mm. certainly on the Saturday, uh, which was almost embarrassing, wasn't it, Clayton? Because what a show she was putting on. That was just, you, know, you can't, but like, you know, you can't believe in a city that's, you know, there are a lot of golfers living within half an hour's drive of that golf course that women especially are so uninterested in the women's game they can't go and watch it it just it's beyond belief for me that they there were i mean we counted i think i mean there were probably a hundred people watching on saturday afternoon oh, there, there might have been um, I, I don't think know, it was triple digits but but if you counted them I, I i reckon there were between 10 and 20 who looked to be members of you know women who are members at golf clubs mm. So to think that they would be that uninterested in that, yeah, I mean, you know, as a friend of mine said, who's a sports commentator, and he said the problem with women's sport is women don't support it, mm. and you, you couldn't argue with that. I mean, it was just atrocious the crowds. I thought, but the week before at the Vic Open, uh, the crowds were much bigger, and, and last week apparently in New Zealand the crowds were bigger. You know, I mean, Lydia was the you know the homecoming queen there, but. It also yeah, wasn't on TV, Clates, and I wonder how much that yeah. has to do. We've been spoiled by television. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it was hot. Yeah, you know, it was hot, and it was. But you know, you'd think you'd get more than twenty women who were watching on Saturday. Well, you know, the yeah. crowds were better on Sunday, but still, it's you know, if, if you want to have these events and see great players play, you've got to. So at some point, golf supporters have to come out and support golf, and you know, it's a bigger question of. You know what we deal shack, I suppose, with architecture is that people don't understand it because they're not actually interested in golf. No. They play it, but yeah. they're playing interested in it. They don't go. Yeah, you know, yeah. They're not buying the future of golf or you know, you know Tom Ducks and Amy with golf course or grounds for golf or you know they're not buying golf books and devouring them. There are three thousand people who buy those books and read them. That's it. And so there's so many people who play golf are not particularly interested in it, which is one of the roots of its problem, really. We had the same thing at, at Riviera, very weak crowds, and uh, and also shockingly uh, uh, stupid crowds. I mean, Angel Cabrera on the fourth hole hit it two and a half feet, and I didn't. I was at the tee, and I there was a little applause, and yeah. and then I got distracted, and and uh, I was doing something and talked to somebody, and then I was up at the green, and he he mopped in this putt, and and then there was a decent ovation. I turned to Doug Ferguson. I said, "Wait, that was for birdie. He just hit a two hundred two and a half feet on a on a two hundred forty yard hole, and he he barely got just got this light applause at the green, and and that just went on all week. There was and and I saw very few people following a group, and 
and getting into the kind of the fun of because Riviera is the best, as Clayton will tell you, yeah. maybe the best spectator course in yeah. golf, just because you can flip between nines easily, you can watch different holes, uh, you can set up in spots, or you can follow a group and get into the the vibe of a group, which is always fun, um, and seeing the dynamics involved with certain players and. Uh, and I also had a chat with some people too about it, it's it's fascinating that golf is obsessed with. I mean, we need to get the rounds faster, but the one thing people don't realize, and we saw it today in the Honda Classic. Oh, Are you still with me, Clates? Honestly, yeah, I think we've just lost Shaq. He's probably still sitting there talking at his cafe will wait till he comes back. He'll come back. But I, I, mean, I went to I went to the LA Open like two thousand and seven. And people, you know, Australians are obsessed with going to the Masters. We've, you know, spend fortunes on tickets and fortunes on, you know, whatever. So I kept telling people, you know, if you want to go to a US tour event, go to the LA Open. It's a great city. It's a great course. There's no one there. It's a, good, it's a really good field. You know, it's like you've been lugging your way off to Augusta and queuing up and spending all that money when you can go and watch tremendous golf. And there's, I was amazed at how average the crowds were for what is it? Yeah, in terms of a world-class field, the field's fantastic. It's a brilliant field. I mean, Tiger's not there, but, you know. For the avid golf fan, though, Clates, that's fantastic, isn't it? I think we had the same experience at Royal Melbourne. But the other thing I wanted to touch on, just, just while we, I try and get Shaq back on the line, talk about the difference between the Vic Open and the Australian Women's Open with the, the crowds being on the fairways and how that changes the game. There's no reason those crowds couldn't have been on the fairways at, the, at Royal Melbourne, I didn't think, that, with the size of the crowds. Just ridiculous that people went on the fairways at Royal Melbourne. I mean, you, I mean maybe you can argue maybe the last group you need marshals and you know, and you, but the Vic Open showed that you can have decent sized crowds walk the fairways and you know, I um, you there? Yes, yeah, so I've got, yeah, I think so, the shack's dropping in and out. Hang on a sec. Okay. So I, you know, I just, the Vic Open shows that that's the way golf should be watched if, if at all possible. And you get away from this obsession with worrying about, you know, the legalities of people walking on fairways and the danger and the, because it worked fine in Australia forever until Bruce Crampton came back and complained about it, and all of a sudden the ropes went up. Well, that's exactly. What I, was, I was going to ask you about that. Where did it all actually start? And you're right, it uh, with Bruce. Now, Shaq, are you back with us? Ah, right, Shaq, we've got you back. So that was a bit of a bit of a disaster. You were talking about the numbers at Riviera, which I think Clates and I discussed. Great for golf, avid golf fans, because you get to get up close and personal. But it's a shame so many people miss out on a great spectacle at the golf. Well, yeah, and I I just don't know how much people enjoy sort of the, the nuances and subtleties of uh, what Riviera affords in terms of being able to follow a group or uh, in terms of being able to bounce around holes. I, I, it was a very uh, kind of disappointing thing to see, especially the weekdays. We used to get very knowledgeable crowds and they were, um, well, they were just tiny crowds and, and they weren't particularly uh, interested in, and knowledgeable in the golf. It was, it was kind of apparent over and over again. Uh, and I don't know that, that also could be just when you don't have uh, a lot of star power in an event. It just uh, in a city like this, where uh, especially when it's Oscars week and everybody's into stars and celebrity, it 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 uh, it's dead. But but still, I'm I'm kind of uh, uh, mystified because it is a it's such a great place to watch golf and and people know that here they know that but. Uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the state of our uh, game, too. Well, it's kind of, t- I think it's a probably more broadly, Shaq. As you say, Cabrera hits it to two and a half feet on the 240-yard hole, nothing. Rory McIlroy gets it airborne. The crowd goes insane. Yeah. There's an yeah. element of celebrity about it, too, and who's there hitting is. the shots, isn't there, which is kind of 
discipline. Maybe there's a sideline in that for you guys. You could set up little, you know, come watch the golf and, you know, learn something about well, what you're watching. You know, it's funny you mention that. You make light of what how entertaining it is to listen to Clates walk, but I'm not making uh, light of it. Think- in all seriousness, I'm not. <laughs> it's it is a well, it is a joy to walk the course. Well, with it Clates. is. And 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 a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at PGA Tour radio, for instance, and uh but I'll tell you what, when I've been at a, any golf tournament and even at the most uh, sort of basic commentary, listening on a radio as you're watching or uh, getting the television feed or something that, that accompanies the, the action, it just makes the viewing so much more enjoyable because you kind of know what's going on elsewhere on the course. Uh, you, you get tips on who to go watch, maybe who's, who's getting hot, you need somebody to go follow. And uh, I, I just think there should be more of an urgency and using technology to to enhance the experience because i've never heard of anybody say oh i went out and i listened to the radio all day and it really annoyed me no you always hear people say oh it was great having the radio they had commentators they had insights and it just added to the viewing experience and they don't really have that urgency uh, here in the united states certain events do but the pga tour in general you have a lot of people who just just aren't really fans they're 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 business people and they don't ever go to a golf tournament and experience it like a fan so they don't really know this Isn't it, it, it's interesting a couple of things about that Clay, you of course did the Australian Open Radio last year at the Australian which was fantastic I'm sure you enjoyed it but as a listening experience to be on the course and have, get it was just phenomenal I imagine you got some good feedback about that Clay, because it, it, as Shaq said it really adds to the viewing experience particularly on course yeah I, mean, I wasn't on the course listening to it but yeah it seemed like it went well lots of interesting people came in and mm. Yeah, we, we spoke to some. I mean, Bill Rogers was down there. He was great. We could have spent well, you know, you, you t- talking to Bill Rogers, but um, it was yeah, and, and it makes sense. I mean, there were lots of people that listened to it, and, and everyone seemed to enjoy it. It makes sense that because you know you don't really know what's going on if you're just watching one group. It's great to be able to keep up with what's happening elsewhere, and right, look, if you, someone's playing well, you can duck out and watch them. And, if you're trying to cover a tournament, there's no question the worst place to be is on the golf course because you can only see one group at a time. If you've got to write about the thing afterwards, television's really the only way to do it. But it raises an interesting point. I'll come to you on this, Shaq, certainly here in Australia. When you go to tournaments, you know, and you work there and you're in the media and you cover the golf, it's extraordinary how little of the conversation is about the actual golf on the course. It's all about all these peripheral issues to do with the game and the state of the business. And nobody ever really talks about the golf, do they? And oh, did you see such and such a shot? It's, it's People in the business of golf, kind of don't watch the golf either, Clay, a shack in a lot of ways. Uh, very much so. It seems like we're more consumed than ever, and, and I'm certainly partly to blame. I cover these things on my blog, but with little controversies and things. And, yeah, the discussion of the actual game seems to bore people. The one thing that I have noticed, it seems to get people's uh, – kind of uh, the, the, uh, the serious fan engaged is, is statistics. And we've seen it in other sports here in the United States, and now we're seeing it in golf more. Uh, when you can quantify things, that seems to open people's eyes more to performances and what people are doing. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I, I do notice that more and more that, uh, you know, a strokes gain discussion or, uh, something else related to numbers seems to to uh, excite people, and I, you know, maybe that's a product too, partially of the, the fault of the the golf reporting that we don't do enough to share what's kind of going on inside the ropes and things we see. But it's very hard to translate a lot of those things when you're competing with YouTube and highlight clips. And if it's and, and again, I'm just as guilty of this as anybody that 
if it's not really worthy of a, a YouTube highlight, uh, it doesn't get people excited. That said, they did the 10th hole at Riviera for the first time last week on the live ad coverage. And I promoted it a lot because we've been complaining about it for so long that they did the best hole on the tour to do that on where every group something happens. Uh, the feedback I got was great. People loved it. They said, wow, it was just, you just got to see different shots, different strategies. And if you really stayed with it, you know, at the office and had it on in the computer on the corner, you really were entertained. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a statement too about kind of the way we way television covers golf. Well, there's a whole world in there. there. I mean, yeah, exactly. You, yeah. you had a terrific interview actually with the guy from Golf Channel a week or two ago on uh, that you put the link to on your site, which was really interesting to hear him talk about more Pro Tracer and those those things are terrific. Golf coverage hasn't really changed, has it? In the last twenty four Pro Tracer is about the only no. thing you can sort of think of. Whereas there's so much scope with the digital world to do what they did at Riviera. Talk about the tenth hole a bit. Shaq, we saw it was pretty controversial this time. I saw Jeff on the Jeff Ogilvy on the Thursday was asked about it, and he sort of talked it up as being a terrific hole and went out and double bogeyed it on Friday morning. So his reaction yeah. might have been a bit different after that. I think we yeah, all I was saw, there for that. I think uh, we all saw the clip of Ryan Moore's shot, which seemed to sort of perhaps uh, crystallise what seemed to be a problem with that hole that week, which was you almost couldn't keep the ball on the green from anywhere. There almost didn't seem to be a way to play the hole. Is that true? Uh, it's a number of things. Well, leading into the tournament, I had even passed along to the tour rules staff that I've been hearing from members. It was it was getting a little bit borderline. We we had the perfect weather leading into the tournament, some rain, and then really warm, dry conditions. So the greens were they were incredibly firm. Uh, they had that poa look of kind of the shiny, silverish white shade. So there was that, and then they probably uh, got a little too excited about how firm they were and didn't didn't add a little moisture just to make sure that it played right. Um, so, I, And then you couple in the changes that were made a few years ago by the Fazio group that uh, sort of accentuated some of the, uh, something like Ryan Moore's ball, which, which just kind of gently lipped out, and it rolled off the green, and the pass-up ball would have just rolled off the green into the approach area, and then they've changed it so it rolled all the way down and looked worse than it was, and Ian Baker Finch, that's what he was very critical of on the telecast here. People kind of misunderstood what he was criticizing. He was criticizing the way they had uh, changed some of the dynamics of the hole. They've also mown down the fringe around the back of the green, and they lowered it a little, which I liked, except now they, the, the fringe is rolled, and it's kept too firm, too fast. It's just a little bit. There's just a little too much going on, a little little trying too hard to make the hole um, challenging, and they did. They did. They, they've kind of gone overboard, and, and so the players really have turned on it. They really, really don't like it at all, and I, I, I can't necessarily blame them. They still play some stupid shots, but they also hit a fair number that I thought were really good shots and ended up balls rolling into, in, uh, into bunkers or off the green, and that's not fun to uh, to see. And then, of course, we had a little bit of rain the final day, and so when they got there for the playoff, the green had just the right amount of moisture where it was still firm, but but holding a good shot, and you could you could play a good shot and feel comfortable. And so we got rewarded with two amazing shots by James Hahn and, and Dustin Johnson, just so clutch to try and pull off the wedge shots they pulled off uh, under pressure. But you know, just that little bit of moisture kind of brought things back to sanity and in Clates knows how many times have we seen this where 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 just a a little bit like that brings things back to sanity and you just ask why 
why wouldn't you have just done that to begin with? And it, and and uh, you know where this all goes back to? It all goes back to to the ball and and the people just uh, who even the people who are very good at setup and very good at maintenance, they still get they get flustered at the idea of the the players having it too easy or being able to dominate the course and and they can if it's a little bit soft they can because they hit at a ridiculous distance and a place like Riviera that's the last defense so there's our for those having the golf ball drinking game out there we <laughs> we have we, I hopefully have allowed you to uh, take a scale. replenish yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed it did it, it gets a bit out of hand doesn't it Clyde's that uh, shack they had that graphic on the PGA Tour from the shot like Scott Piercy's uh, playing the hole looked like a shoelace didn't it it went across and back oh. and across and back and yeah, and if you watch that closely, one or two of the shots were not good, but one of them was excellent, and it still went off. And that's when you see that, that's when you know it's something. You can you can watch closely what the ball does coming out of the bunker and, and the way it lands, and you can tell the difference between one that just was not a good shot and one was. Yeah, indeed. So uh, if you're listening, PGA Tour and professional golf course set up people, get it right. It, uh, it improves the golf, improves the product, improves the uh, – the viewing experience now, Shaq, uh, a couple of other issues around the world. Let's talk about this playoff at the Honda was pretty interesting stuff uh, that we've just seen this morning. Talk us a bit through Ian Poulter. He, he had a few too many shots. You think he took a bit too much time to take them? <laughs> oh, it's it's. Uh, I, I'm going to go back and the replay will be on uh, here this afternoon. I'm going to I'm going to time how long he took to play a couple of the holes. He he was absurdly slow and even the announcers started to call him out on it wondering how it would affect Padraig Harrington but then Padraig kind of <laughs> set up shot later and and Dan Hicks said well maybe maybe Padraig enjoyed having all that time to prepare and um, he did play ready golf though to his credit Padraig did after after Poulter set up uh, camp and was shanking it and doing all these weird things uh, Harrington at least was ready to go when it was turn, which with, uh, when you at tour events right now, when you see these guys not ready to go when it's their turn, it's just it's just so aggravating. But uh, it was a nutty, nutty finish, absolutely insane, and it just kind of continued this trend of of I'm just shocking, shocking, choking down the stretch. I mean, if you knew how bad the wedge shots at Riviera were by by Sergio and Dustin Johnson into the 17th green on Sunday. It just, it just, we were just flabbergasted. These were horrible shots with an L wedge from a flat, flattish lie, and 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 it's just been happening every week on the tour. This, this stunning choking. Well, not to and mention. I don't like to call it choking because it's no. a lot of pressure and things happen. But these are just, uh, these are just blatant. Uh, Vomit jobs down the stretch. We had Kymer in Abu Dhabi, and we had Schwartz oh, in South Africa. Yeah. Early in the, I think Kymer was ten in front through four holes of the final yeah. times. Was he not? And, and managed. What what goes on there, Clates? You're a you're a player, a touring pro. How, how does a pro mess up shots with a lob wedge from perfect fairway lies? Like, is it just pressure? What what gives there? Shots you've yeah, a million times. I guess it's nerves and pressure. I mean, Lydia wouldn't mess it up. I put my money on her hitting that shot, so just mad at myself. But and there was a massive mess up in India the other day too. That time in India, the oh, European yeah. event. Although, in fairness, Clates, that course is like a bowling alley, by the way, and, and it's just cobra yeah. country off the fairways. You, if you miss the fairways by about three feet, you're in kind of yeah. dense bushland. <laughs> so easy to rack up big numbers there. But you're right; it was another another big lead that sort of disappeared. It's entertaining though for the crowds. You know, the, the finish to fly. I've only seen some of the highlights, but it looked like it was pretty entertaining. So I think you watched it, Clates. Was would have been fun to watch, I imagine. Yeah. Um, 
having said that, I mean, Harrington made a great putt this morning to get in the playoff and hit a great shot at the 17th hole in the, in the second playoff hole. I mean, he, well, he kind of made a birdie, he missed the putt, but he had two, he had three putts and three feet to win it. But So he came through. But, you know, the burger hit it in the water in the playoff. I mean, he... I mean, he was probably going to lose anyway. I mean, Harrington's such a great shot, but chunked it in the water. And, and Harrington's shot at the, at the 71st hole was horrendous in the tournament. I mean, he carved it off into the way off into the right in the water. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. It was a, it was a Good, terrible shot for anyway. How about it, Clates? How about his swing and all this stuff he's doing? At Riviera, he had – I actually saw him a fair amount and watched him. And he has some, some stuff going on in the body language and the follow-through – and this sort of walk through, it's it's like a a Gary Player walk through. Only yeah. a, does it looks like a twenty five handicapper doing it. I mean, it is it is some weird stuff. And then that drill, how about the drill he's doing uh, with the walk through with his legs tied up the rubber band? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he's tried everything. He must have tried everything there is to. I mean, you know, he and keeps, it worked. He just won. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, he keeps talking about you know if you're not going forward, you you know, you know if you're staying still, you're going backwards, but. Boy, you know, we were, I was talking about with Steve Bannon yesterday about you know, Nicholas and Tiger and how Nicholas, you know, changed his swing a lot over the course of his career but because his body changed, he got older, but he seemed to sort of transition so well from one swing to another, Nicholas, whereas Tiger's not doing it so well and Harrington's just always searching and it's go and play golf, man. I mean, you play golf, it's go and play. And- well, wh- how much of that, Clates, can we maybe attribute to things like Trackman and video and these K vests and... and- the, the swing having been broken down into such a scientific movement where it's now taught is this position, this position, that number. If you hit that number, then you can play good golf. It's only part of the equation, though, isn't it? Is that maybe what I – mean, it looks like Harrington forgot how to play golf, in a sense. Didn't forget how to hit it or do anything. Just forgot how to play and get the ball in the hole. You've got to be able to put that stuff aside, don't you, when you get on the course. And Woods well, looks a bit well, the same. Well, I think he said as much on TV this morning. He said, you know, he said, I felt like I played well. I can't believe he said, well, he said, he said – are the yips? He said, "I put it so bad." He said, "Are the yips?" So, you know, there's at least some admitting to having the yips, which mm. is nice to hear. I mean, we, we could do it you know, with a bit more admitting of the problem in golf. But um, you know, he, he might have played well two years ago, but putted poorly. But I mean, clearly, he's but he hadn't done much this year at all. I think his best finish was what they say, tied for fifty sixth or something last week at Riviera. So, it'd been pretty bad. He's, he's been a good player for a long time. And he, he came on the tour, boy, when I was still playing in Europe 20 years ago. He 1995 or six. he came out there. Yeah. I went to the 97 Open and there was talk that he, he could win it. And he was there at the end too. And he was the, he was so, the bright young hope of sort of European and Irish golf at the time. And, so he's been out there a long time and played a lot of good golf. Yeah, absolutely. Shaq, it's interesting, isn't it? We heard Michelle Wee say at the beginning of last year before she won the US Open, she was, I think it was at the first major of the year, they were going to show her a video of a swing on the coverage. She said, oh, no, I don't do that anymore. I haven't looked at my swing on video for six months. And her yeah. career's been on the up ever since. It's interesting, isn't it? You get away from yeah. that. She's gone back to just playing golf. I know it's it's uh I didn't see I'll tell you that was one of the most interesting things at Riviera uh when I'd walked the range how few people were using video and and really uh there were a lot of people fussing over their swing but but very few using video a lot a lot more track man it's um uh I, I and I don't I I understand it I think I think it's great if track man in the right hands is yeah is better than video because it does get you away from obsessing about the look of things but you know then there were a couple guys that were doing some i mean there you, you also see some strange things and then the other thing i have to say that just was 
shocking the entire week. <laughs> I think I may have said this last year, but it just took on another uh, level watching play this year. And, and in part because the greens were, you know, they were almost 13 right after they cut them, which is obscene. And, uh, but the, the short games on the PGA Tour, as good as their long games are, it is stunning how bad some of the putting is, how weird some of the putting grips are, how bad some of the players look over, over putts. And how just mechanical and rigid and and stiff they look with a wedge or a putter in their hand. I, I don't know what to make of it. Doesn't a doesn't a green running at thirteen do that to you? After it a does. Year or two, it Shane? does. And Is I tried it? to take that into account, yeah. but then you'd see it on some very basic, straightforward shots, and you think, oh, now this is just strange. That just was not that complicated of a shot. I think I'm pretty good at discerning the difference between a very wicked, tough shot and one that's that's kind of a cut and dried thing and it was just bizarre to watch mm-hmm. harrington by the way one of those interesting grips ernie ells has got some wacky looking thing going now with a like a claw with something else and it's uh, and i don't know maybe this is in part a response to the the belly putter going away i remember appleby describing a grip he was using for a while with his putter as like two lobsters mating but he didn't use the term mating he, <laughs> he described it as something else which i thought yeah was interesting. Clay's Huggy made a point on this show many moons ago uh, in the early days that he caddied for you once when you played with Nicholas Colsarts. And I remember him distinctly saying, you looked at each other and said, this guy's amazing. He can hit the ball, but no idea how to play golf. There's a huge difference in there being, being, between being able to hit the ball and actually being able to play golf. Yeah, it was a Royal Melbourne Fairness, which is more complicated than most. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, was, uh, he was incredibly talented. And he, you know, he turned out to be, well, he's a terrific player now, but this was 10 years ago when he was just coming out and but yeah, he hit the, he, and then, interestingly, going back to women's golf, So Young Yu came down and stayed with us at the beach house the weekend before the Australian Open because she couldn't play any courses in Melbourne, which is staggering itself. Oh, that's so, that, that Did you not tell me, Clay, one of the ladies got charged to play at a golf course in Melbourne? They charged IK Kim $110 to play at my club, which is very embarrassing. That is embarrassing. But, um, there's a practice fair at Sandwich Beach. It's it's like a hole. It's a sloping fairway, and you know, Tommy, her caddy, got her out there hitting shots and different lies and different slopes. And we got 110 yards away with one shot. And I, we, were, we were playing five five ball competitions nearest the pin. I was like, okay, from here, five balls, five clubs, and we finished up. We finished up for half an hour hitting high cut six irons from 110 yards across the bunker. She, she actually finished up hitting a hybrid. She hit this high cut. It was like, she said, this is so much fun because, you know, golf ranges now just promote robotics. I mean, I suppose they always did, but, you know, I watched Bruce Crampton at 40 years ago at Victoria hitting three irons to his caddy. At, you know, you stand there on a flat line, you just hit one shot after another. So practicing off flat lines almost promotes the sort of robotic golf that, you, that we criticize a bit. But here she was out there on different lines, hitting shots to greens with different clubs and, it was almost like a revelation to us. Well, perhaps not a revelation, but it certainly opened her eyes to the fact that you could play six clubs from 110 yards away, which goes back to you know the genius of all geniuses who learned to play with a three-arm. So Stevie grew up playing with that one club. So he, so he could see, he had incredible imagination, but you, know, you see 10-year-old, 12-year-old kids with lob wedges in their bag. Well, what the hell is that about? Surely if you were going to teach a kid to play golf, you wouldn't let them use a lob wedge until they were 16 or 18 at least. So under the Clayton rules, pros would have to carry a two-iron and be able to prove once a year that they can hit it, and juniors wouldn't be allowed to have a lob wedge. No lob wedges. Well, well no. you learn so much more. I mean, you, you, yeah. you, 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 I mean, 
the less the, the the least amount of loft on your pitching club, the more you've got to be inventive. You've got to open the face and put the ball forward. And, I mean, Peter Fowler could play golf with a wedge, no problem at all. He doesn't need a lob wedge or a sandwich, really. He can get the thing up in the air. I watched him hitting flop shots one year at Coolham on the 16th green for practice. Yeah. Hitting flop shots on yeah. the green. So you know, it, it comes back to you know creativity. So if you give kids lob wedges when they're 10 years old, I mean, you'd be any chance of them being creative with a club with less lob because yeah. why be creative? You don't have to be. Mm. The other thing that's interesting about that, Clotes, of course, is that statistically, I think there's only six players, women players in the world better than Soyon. She's ranked number seven in the world, I think, and yet this was a revelation to her, this sort of practice. That's telling in itself, isn't it? This, this generation of golfers, well, probably not the last couple of generations of golfers probably, this just hasn't been part of the package, the fun part. I mean, well, golfers used to start playing as kids, didn't they, and knock it around with their mates, and they'd have little betting competitions like what you were doing when they were kids and learned something. Now you go off to an academy and put on a vest and go on track man. But in fairness to her, she admitted she grew up playing on golf courses in Korea, which were not interesting. Hmm. So she goes to Melbourne and she loves the golf course because well, this is, well, this, you know, this is an extra dimension to the game that it's not just hit straight between the lines and hit on the green putt, go to the next hole. So, so she, she, I mean, she, and going back to Stacey Lewis, I mean, what's surprising about what she said, she was in that playoff. I mean, So Young was in the playoff that Jessica quarter one. Stacey Lewis was also in that playoff. Yeah. So it wasn't like Stacey had a bad experience when she was at Royal Melbourne, apart from the fact she lost uh, her but, you know, She, she has some well. pretty strong views about she's, – she's, she's very American. She's, um, <laughs> she's had to suspend her Twitter account a couple of times, hasn't she, Shaq? From- well, yeah, and that, we love her, her strong opinions. Yeah. But she has – just listening to her talk, she has a very strong American kind of uh, upbringing. Uh, likes, likes her golf, I think, uh, greener and, and a little bit softer and – and doesn't uh, probably love uh, what Ron Melbourne has to offer like we do. We might start a- there was a great story. She was at the Australian Open of Victoria a couple of years ago. One of the equipment manufacturers came and said, Stacey, how are those drivers we sent you over Christmas? So, you know, obviously, that center of pilot drivers to try out. And she said, hmm, tell you the truth, they're all shit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's she, she'll be a great television commentator someday if she wants to do it. She look, she probably will after she's been through the Clayton re-education camp and uh, and been reprogrammed. It'll be true. It's important though. I mean, it, for you, you might joke about it. And I, I disagree with the things she said, but it's important to have the opposing voice, isn't it, Shaq? Oh. So that you can discuss these matters. It's no fun if we all agree on everything. Well, uh, even yes. if she's wrong. I, I, yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think that, um, uh, you know, when we saw the last couple of weeks that a little pushback from the players is great. Mm. And they do need to hear this when they take the courses a little far. It's just that, um, I mean, even Paul Casey, who I think is one of the, the, the sharpest guys you can talk to about course design and setup, he, he, he walked off, he made bogey on 10 on uh, uh, Thursday. Uh, ended up in the playoff, by the way, in the tournament. And uh, but on on Thursday, he walks off and he and he he just looks at me and goes, "Worst worst green on the PGA Tour." So I go up after the round. I try to find him. I, I kind of watch him, see if he's how his mood is. And he had a good round, so he was in a good mood. And I said, "So uh, could you could you kind of elaborate on that?" And, and so we talked through what was what was going on. And he realized it's not the the greens design's fault necessarily that it was a setup issue and so you know in the heat of the moment players say things and so the the unfortunately the rules officials and the people who do the setup or the maintenance people 
they kind of tend to seize on those those uh, uh, heated comments. And but a lot of these players, if you kind of step back and have a conversation with them, and you talk about some of the elements, the the smart ones, once they kind of separate their bogey or their double bogey from it all, um, are able to give you kind of a rational explanation why they think it's over the top. I did not, however, seek out Jeff after his double. Um, <laughs> a good idea. I right? just I just felt that uh, I watched it and I uh, yeah and I. Uh, it was not. There was nothing to talk about. <laughs> he had given us great stuff the day before on the tenth hole and other stuff, and he had played a good first round. And so, he got a uh, I did not feel though the need to go and find out anymore. You could have just berated yourself. It was uh... <laughs> indeed. Oh, he would have been fine. I just would, yeah. figured it was one of those. He just didn't need to. It just didn't need to come no. up anymore. Clates, uh, we know professional golfers look at the game through a very narrow prism, but as do all golfers, and I know you've, you've probably told this story on the podcast before, but just thinking about the discussion that Shaq had with Paul Casey there and him, Casey coming to realise, you know, once he calms down after the double bogey that there might be some other issues apparently. Tell the story again about the discussion you had with a member, I think it was at Royal Queensland, about a fairway bunker. A bunker in the, was it a bunker in the middle of a fairway oh, yeah, that he took no. exception to and how you sort of explained it to him and then he sort of saw what you were talking about. So tell that story because it's, it's informative. Well, a question came about the fairway bunker, that this ridiculous fairway bunker in the middle of the ninth fairway that made my perfect drive and it goes in the bunker. And I said, okay, well, the, it, was, it was a member forum thing and the bunker's 260 yards off the tee or something. And I said, okay, so there's 30 yards between the bunker and the right edge of the fairway. So that's not in itself an unreasonable width of fairway. And he said, no, I agree with that. So then there's 25 yards left of it. So it, it, it's a slightly better angle down the left. So, so there's, and then there's 25 yards left of it. So that's kind of narrowish, but you know, not too narrow. He said, yeah. He said, so what you're saying is if, if we grew all of the left side out as rough and made the fairway bunker on the left side of the fairway, that would be okay, wouldn't it? Because there's 30 yards right of it. And he said, well, I've never thought of it like that. You know, so, and of course, short of the bunker, the fairway is obviously 60 yards wide and over it's 60 yards wide and there's plenty of space. And, but, you know, the fact that he never, he never even considered that, he, he just thought that any bunker in the middle of the fairway was automatically stupid because that's where my perfect drive, you know, if I had a perfect drive, it goes in the bunker. Well, yeah, and he failed to make the connection between, well, actually, surely the measure of a perfect shot is how it relates to the next shot you've got. And if it's in a bunker, it's obviously not perfect, but... But, you know, in fairness, he admitted that what he was saying was stupid when I pointed out that, well, there's 30 yards right of it, and if we made the whole left side rough, that would be okay. He said, well, wow, it's, yeah, you're right. So it's, you know, it just goes to, you know, you, see these, you hear throwaway lines about golf courses the whole time about conditioning and holes that are stupid and trees that are great. And, you know, I just, I was at a, by a shack, I was at a golf course yesterday. Not about golf course in Melbourne, doing some work at it. And there's one pine tree on this hole that just destroys what would be a, what would be the best hole in the golf course. And I've argued about this tree for years. I mean, it's beyond belief that anyway, it's, a, it's an easy par five, and they think the hole would be too easy if they cut the tree down. Why don't you make it a par four? I'll be too hard then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't believe how stupid this tree is and how, how it ruins what would be the best hole in the golf course. It's just beyond belief how, yeah. how they can't see it. But We've only just started work there, so we'll work on them. How many of these member forums do you subject yourself to in an average year, Clates? I can't imagine that's a pleasant experience, is it? No, they're not really. They're, they're uh, well, well, they can be. It, it, it depends. How, it depends if the members have any respect for your opinion or not. And I've been to a couple where they don't. And Michael Cocking's much. He's, he's much more diplomatic than me. But 
Mm, he's a good talker. I, I, following you and Sue in the uh, – well, I might tell you about it later. Heard some interesting comments about you in the crowd whilst I was following you and Sue around at Royal Melbourne the first two days, uh, I must say. Some people don't respect your caddying skills, if I could put it that way, Clates. It was your fault that she missed the cut. I heard that more than once. Yeah, and I wasn't clear. Who was on the bag for the win? Uh, her dad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So was it, was it my fault that she made the cut the, the year week before? Or she, or she won the Vic, nearly won the Vic Open. Uh, this is a classic Clayton. You're distracting yeah. the point here, Clayton. It's got yeah. nothing to do with the cuts that she has made. Only the ones that just it's my fault. She missed the cut. No, yeah, that's right. I tell oh, you, of course. So I, you know, I agree. And you hate trees and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I hate so, trees. Yeah, I hate this trees. is the problem with having opinions, Clayton. Other people don't like them, and then they're not not afraid to go ahead and disagree with them publicly. Sue told us something really interesting. We we interviewed her at. Um, this is a lovely story, Shaq. At uh, Pennant Hills, she played in two one-day pro-ams before her first four-round event, which was the Vic Open, where you caddied for her, uh, Clates, and it was your fault that she didn't get into the playoff, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we were chatting to her about, uh, you know, starting life as professional golf and whatnot, and we'd finished our interview, and we were just walking the course with her, and I was said to her something about her dad. Her dad was caddying the bag. I said, you know, what percentage is he on? And she said, at the moment, it's 100. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, when I signed up to join the ALPG as a member... They asked for bank account details. I didn't have one, so I gave them dad's. I don't know whether she'd sorted it out by two weeks later when she won the ladies' masters, but there's every chance that the, what did she win there? Sixty or seventy thousand dollars, Clates? Well, no, well, no. Well, she won. She won. There was a one-off bonus, so, so she won. A, she won the sixty-five thousand for winning, but whatever it was. But Plus there was a fifty. There was a fifty thousand dollars bonus. That's right. So, dad's done very nicely. Thank you very much. Out of. Uh, I imagine she sorted that out by now, but yeah, isn't that just a lovely story? I didn't have a bank well, account. Well, the classic, she came to me and said, I've got 50, she said, is $50,000 a lot of money? Oh, dear. I said, well, so I said, when you're 18 and you've just left school and you've made $130,000 in two weeks, yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, how many, how, many of kids, how many of the kids you went to school with have made $130,000 in the last two weeks? That's right. It's so, an attitude yeah. that will hold her in good stead, mate. Did you then well, present her with an invoice for your two days of work at Royal Melbourne or...? Well, it was my fault you missed the cut, so how could I ask her to pay me? But um, she she generally doesn't care about the money. She's out there to play and, you know, I don't think she, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah she's not playing for the money. No. Might she's still be out there long enough to figure out that your life revolves around money on the, on the tour because, because you, you know, you, the, the position – your position on the money list is very important. So That's right. It's not what you can do with the money in terms of setting yourself up and doing all the things that working people do and what money means to them. It's about keeping your job, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, you'll be plenty comfortable, you know, if you play a couple of years on the tour. One would think not so much in women's golf, but certainly in men's golf. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jack, it came to me while you were talking earlier. We were discussing the game and, you know, kids playing and all that sort of stuff. Kids coming into the game for different reasons these days, I think, isn't it? With the money in the game, we've sort of changed... Uh, the way kids get introduced to and then end up becoming professional golfers, don't we? The lure of the money seems to be far more powerful than the joy of the game as a starting point. Is that a fair point? I think so. Uh, that was, the other thing you marvel at when when you kind of go to an event every year and you sort of take in the groups and different people and who's here this year and who's not is the, the turnover rate on the PGA Tour. It's just shocking how... Quickly, people who are the next Nicholas are uh, disappearing, and and uh, how many new faces there are, and then they're, they're gone in a few years, and it it's just a it's a strange thing to see. And I I guess it's always golf's always had a bit of a high turnover rate, but it just seems like things are more fleeting now. Whether that's uh, just the 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 depth of the fields, the quality of the the number of quality players. 
uh, the uh, you know the equipment bringing things together more uh, than ever. I, I'm not sure, but there is, and I would go back to the way the short games look. That that you you know I, good short game players uh, have good short games because they love to practice it and they love to come up with shots and have an imagination. You know, somebody like Phil, you just don't see many players coming along with with this with a, an array of shots that tells you they've been spending hours around the chipping green having contests and hitting little crazy shots and coming up with wacky uh, ways to play a shot uh and i i, I just don't i'm, I'm kind of surprised by that I mean, that's why we get a little bit excited about jordan speed you feel like he's got some some game around the greens and some imagination but some freedom uh, in the way he goes about freedom it. Yeah, he, that's a great way to put it yes yeah, he, he really seems to enjoy it and get on with it and he's looking forward to hitting the next shot even if he's hit the previous one into a spot that he's not necessarily happy with that you know that yeah every shot's an opportunity as opposed to correct marking the scorecard as he goes various yeah various students and that was exactly the vibe i got off of uh, this justin thomas mm. who's, who's a young kid everybody's really excited about and uh, he had a disastrous day on Saturday, but it was still fascinating to watch how he handled it and his body language and how he how he just kind of kept moving forward. And and you know Riviera was beating them up the, the entire field and and so you'd walk around and that's the other beauty of walking around when there's nobody there you can just look over the holes. It was and I, I finally a fan pointed it out to me and said I've never seen so many depressed looking golfers and <laughs> and and with their heads down and their shoulders slumped. And then you'd come on uh, a Justin Thomas or, or Jordan Spieth and then a couple of players who were playing well and you just saw a totally different body language and, and, and the way they were walking and, and the vibe was, was, was different. And it was, it's, it, you said, ah, here's somebody who's engaged and who's, who's moving uh, forward and not looking back. And, and, and I, love, I, mean, I love seeing that kind of stuff. I, I, it's fascinating. And, uh, it, but it was also fascinating how few players you get that, that great uh, uh, sort of vibe around that they're, uh, they're on a different wavelength. Clates, is it something about playing the game for a living that eventually wears you down and does that to you? I imagine that once you've turned professionally you start playing for a living, the fun element slowly but surely must seep out as it becomes more and more your business, you know, your, your own brand, particularly at the top levels on the PGA Tour where the money's so big. Can you lose the the love of the game? I mean, Tiger looks in some ways to have lost just the, the joy of the game, what we see from Jordan Spieth, what we talked about there. It can burn you out, can't it? Well, it just evolves into something different from when you start. Obviously, it's pretty exciting when you start. But uh, you know, I mean, going back to the the turnover, I, mean, I think um, I think o Jeff Ogilvy and John Sennett are two of I think six players now who've finished in the top 125 for it's now 13 consecutive years. I mean, you would think there'd be way more than that. You'd mm -hmm. think there'd be 20 at least. And I mean, you, Tiger hasn't, but I suppose you can him, Mickelson, Furyk, a couple of others. But you know, you, you would think that. There'd be, a, there'd be more than six players who would finish mm. in the top 125 oh. for 13 years in a row. That's but, a hell of a step. Where'd you pull that from? Uh, John Sennon's wife told me that last year. Wow. Mm. At, the, at the Australian Open two years ago. So, so that's a pretty amazing stat to think that there are less than, a, less than 10 players who've kept their, not kept their cards because players have kept their cards through their career, money this day, all that sort of stuff. But... To, to finish in the top 125 for that many years in a row, it's it's a it's a commentary on how difficult it, it is to do that. Yeah, and does it also speak to just how good the likes of Mickelson and McElroy and yeah. Adam Scott? I mean, yeah. 
do we sometimes underappreciate just how good they are at this game? Yeah. Weekend? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 Mickelson especially. I mean, he's been out there for you – know, he's done – and, and Furyk. I mean, Furyk is another one. They've yeah. done 20 years. Mm. So, you know, whilst Furyk hasn't won as much as he should have for the number of times he's been in contention perhaps, you know, to play that well out there for that long is remarkable really. Especially when you and, keep coming and, up and, short. And, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He he's, keeps having, and and you go follow him, and he's absolutely locked in. He is every shot is the most important shot he's ever hit in his life coming up. I mean, he is, but not 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 to the point of where his intensity is is off the charts. He's just focused. It's incredible to watch. I mean, he had a good week. He had a chance to win a Riviera, and you know, kind of started to fade down the stretch. But it's amazing to watch uh, at this point after this many years. And especially then when you see kind of what's going on with Tiger, where it's clearly he's he is probably burned out. Um, to see Phil and, and Furyk, even if they're not what they once were, uh, they're still just they're still grinding. Yeah. Gents, we've got to wrap it up because you're going to run out of Wi-Fi there at Starbucks Shack and Cloates has got to get yeah. this one. Just one last thing. You, you mentioned Tiger there and obviously Harrington had a win which was terrific to see this week. I heard him on an Irish golf podcast talking about at Torrey Pines, the TV kept replaying Tiger's difficulties, if we could call it those, around the greens. And he said it was interesting. You know, most of the players that were there in the locker room or whatever would turn away from the t- – they don't want to watch that because he said, you know, mm. when you play a pro-am on Wednesday and the pros chunk it, uh, the amateurs chunk it and they apologize, you don't worry about it. I don't relate to your game. But when you see Tiger do it, every single player looks at it and thinks, oh, if it could happen to him, it might happen to me. So they won't watch it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? how strong and fragile the mind needs to be to be at the top of world golf. Just uh, incredible stuff. Shaq, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Get, great to get your thoughts on Riviera and uh, from being there. Look forward to catching up with you again shortly. All right. Thank you, Rod. And Clay Stanley, great to talk to you as always, and we must go out and follow some more golf. Great to get your commentary, but good of you to come along today. Enjoyed it today. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. And that wraps it up for State of the Game episode 52. We'll be back to do it again all again shortly. Hope you've enjoyed it. Looking forward to your company on the next State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.